Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Our approach to tackling coronavirus is to prepare for the worst and work for the best. You need a totally different style of leadership. It's not enough to have a plan. You need to be testing, testing, testing. Britain and the EU, do they want to be seen as locking horns on an issue such as a no-deal Brexit when the economy is going to be suffering and people's lives are going to be facing so much disruption? You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. A very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. And I'm Caroline Hepke. Warm welcome to the programme. As the pandemic really grips Britain and the Prime Minister remains in hospital. Yes, he spent a second night in intensive care with the coronavirus. Downing Street said the Prime Minister's stable and hasn't been on a ventilator, but it's not known when he's likely to be well enough to leave hospital. Meanwhile, the Prime Minister's deputy, the Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab, is trying to reassure Britain that the fight against the virus is under control. But the government, of course, faces criticism over its handling of the crisis. Speaking this morning, the health minister, Edward Argar, insisted that ministers will be guided by the science when deciding how and when the lockdown restrictions will be eased. We will be led by the scientific evidence of when is the right moment for changes to be made. At the moment, that is not the right moment. Well, as the chief scientific advisor said, there are some positive signs in terms of the rate of growth of the virus slowing a little, but we don't know, the evidence isn't there yet as to whether we've reached the peak. So the message this weekend, this week, is hugely important. It's keep staying at home, um, keep protecting our NHS, and by doing that, we will save lives. Now is not the time to let up. Now is the time to double down, keep following that advice, and sticking with it. And that was Edward Arger, the health minister, speaking uh, this morning. Now, joining us, I'm very pleased to say, is Ian Duncan-Smith, Conservative MP and former party leader. Um, So, Ian, let me ask you, if I may, first of all, is it really clear who's making the key decisions now in the government? Yes, it is. I I think I need to reassure everybody that this is a, a reality for the UK constitution and that the cabinet, made up of Secretaries of State running their departments, health, um, uh, home affairs, as it were, all these things, they're all uh, people who have authority and they sit normally at the table with the Prime Minister, who is the leader of that cabinet. And therefore, their authority continues, the plan continues. The Prime Minister himself is mm. incapacitated insofar as he won't be doing day to day discussions or decision making, and he's handed that to his deputy, who is the first secretary, uh, Dominic Raab. But that continues under Dominic Raab in a very similar way. And all decisions are cabinet decisions. You have collective responsibility made in agreement by the cabinet and then announced out either by the individual Secretary of State or led by the Prime Minister, or in this case, Dominic Raab. So that doesn't change. Uh, uh, and I think people should be reassured that they're, they're getting on with the plan to, uh, to, to save us from uh, a full outbreak of COVID-19 that may uh, kill more people. 
Yeah, absolutely. Thousands of people across um, the country have died already, of course. Um, you know, the stakes could not be higher. Your colleague, Tobias Elwood, uh, was speaking to us on Bloomberg Radio this morning. He put it this way. You're asking cabinet ministers to do things that they perhaps don't have experience with or have uh, done before. And it's important that you reach out and have a slimmer team that is able to meet the challenge in front of you. Is he right? Do we actually need a slimmed down team at the top? Uh, No, I don't actually understand quite what that criticism is about. The government itself right now already has uh, the key elements, the key members of the cabinet that are relevant to the immediate discussions about COVID. So you will have, for example, the Home Secretary, who is all the policing and the border uh, areas. You have the the, the Health Secretary, which is all about the health response. Uh, And then others like, um, for example, uh, Michael Gove, who handles government support through the civil service. You'll have the cabinet secretary who is there as well. And then you'll have all the scientific and medical advisors. And they will be playing, uh, those key areas will be playing their day-to-day role of reporting in, discussing what has to be done, how do we improve, how do we change various elements. Mm. There'll be a wider discussion that comes out in cabinet as well on a regular basis. And then finally, of course, as we head towards the end of this week, the beginning of next, they will already be reviewing how how has the lockdown succeeded? Are we seeing a flattening? They're already doing that at the moment. And so the decision to whether we start to move away from this is wholly based on what the results are in the course of this week. So I, I'm content that the government is doing what it should do. And I'm content that the, the leadership of that under Dominic Raab uh, is fine. And uh, I have a lot of uh, faith in him. I think he's a, a strong individual and we'll get on. But obviously we all pray that Boris Johnson uh, recovers quickly from his uh, situation right now and uh, becomes comes back in charge. Indeed, but I mean, I think the point perhaps that Tobias L was making, Sian, was that th- this is a government that uh, was elected almost entirely on one issue, which was Brexit. That's an issue that's really perhaps for another day. And that's the point. These people are not necessarily people who are used to making these kind of decisions. And he did also say in the interview that we should that, that, that there should be a widening out and perhaps bringing in of people from outside with more expertise. Do, do you agree with that? Well, again, the government is already doing that. This is an intriguing point about this critique. The government already does that. It has all the science advisors, the health advisors, uh, the civil servants. It's gone to uh, private industry. It's talking to the heads of private labs. Uh, The Paul Nurse, for example, has been advising the government, and he runs his own laboratory. He's a very senior uh, scientific individual. Uh, they're, They're getting all that regularly. It's not as though they're cloistered down in some room somewhere saying, what do we do next? Uh, They're doing this on the basis of advice. I would do exactly the same. When I sat six years in a cabinet, uh, I know how it works and I know uh, how it is. Yes, if they want advice, I don't know, from people who have had more experience in government, like me or Michael Howard or various others, they only have to pick up the telephone. And I talk to cabinet ministers a lot during the course of the week uh, about issues, uh, as others do. So this is not a this is not a tiny little group of people with no experience trying to figure it out. They're they're people who are getting full uh, views and experience from okay. those who are experts in their. In field. that case, Sir Ian, why did we not follow? the advice of the World Health Organization, the German model for mass testing much earlier. The chief medical officer has basically just admitted that. 
Uh, well, no, he hasn't, actually. He's got to examine what he's actually said. You've got to understand, first of all, how different countries are in different positions or were in different positions when this outbreak began. First and foremost, uh, Germany has a much different picture in terms of diagnostics. Uh, German industry has a very big industrial base on diagnostics. Uh, that is one of their big... The Chemicals uh, Association exports. of the UK, though, said that they, they were slightly baffled by the criticism around their industry in the UK. Uh, well, look, uh, I can tell you now. Just let me explain. Mm. Germany, in some senses, is slightly unique. They do have an incredibly uh, powerful and strong diagnostic industry within their scientific groupings. Here in the UK, our science area is in different areas. It's not in diagnostics. Uh, and the problem is when you have a global pandemic like this, you can't always share that. So if it had been just the UK, for example, suffering this, then you would have been able to say, right, Germany can step in and support us on, 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 on this process. So, so now what's happened is the government, if there is a criticism uh, early on, I think the government should have gone to the private sector labs here who could have then started changing the way they work and then go into diagnostics, which they're doing now. That's a relative criticism. But the reality is everyone in the world is trying to get testing sets and chemicals. Uh, and so the demand is everywhere and enormous. And so it's not just the case that the UK government said we don't need to test. The UK government said, given the nature of the difficulty in getting these things, uh, there would be, to a degree, a more limited testing profile that would rise. Now their target is 100,000, uh, and, and those testing sets are now arriving and have been arriving. So, you know, get, we need to get the balance in place. It's very easy to hurl rocks at this. But the truth is, this pandemic uh, is unique, and it's trying to feel our way forward on this, which is critical. But I do believe the government is doing what they can do. Yes, well, there's not without criticism, but I think well, by and large, they're getting it right. Well, some of that criticism, not much of it has to be said, uh, has been coming from the opposition at the moment. Is there a case, I mean, the, the spirit of 1940 has been evoked, not least by the Queen last weekend. Uh, is it a moment to form some kind of national unity government to invite Sir Keir Starmer on board with his colleagues? Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, I think the situation is different. Um, the government itself gets all the support it needs and can reach out to anybody. As I said earlier on, if you want to talk to the leader of the opposition, you do that. And they're already holding uh, discussions with the leader of the opposition. It's a, it's a different leader, I accept now, who's uh, probably a better place to discuss things with him. But he's brought into this. And I was leader of the opposition uh, during the Iraq process. I was fully briefed on a regular basis by the prime minister. Uh, and I tried to help and support where I could. And I had my own tennis of advice in. But you don't need to form, as it were, a national government because this is a very specific concern and the government as i say can get all the advice it needs and has all the mm. powers it needs to take this uh, uh, okay. no i don't but they can certainly reach out They're, i've spoken to ministers i said earlier on a lot others have to uh, this is a government that is not sitting in an isolated box somewhere it is actually communicating with all the people it needs to okay with all of your experience ian if you were in government now is there anything that you would change in terms of the approach the mass the messaging briefly uh yeah i think early on I think the government uh, could have been a little more uh, open and honest about what they didn't know. Uh, because the truth is, um, the biggest problem we face is this should never have reached this level of pandemic. And had China been open and honest about this from the word go and about human-to-human -human transmission, we would have been in a much better place and they would have been to stop 
the outbreak. And I think you, um, uh, and so the government has, has had to play catch up, as have lots of governments, including Italy and others, suddenly found that they were, uh, they were in a pandemic, perhaps before they'd even understood the nature of the transmission. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Let's just have a reminder of some of the other stories that are around today. Yeah, indeed. The first COVID-19 patients have begun uh, filling beds at the new Nightingale Hospital here in London. A spokeswoman has declined to say how many people are being treated there. The field hospital at the XL Centre, uh, which is in the Docklands, of course, has more than 80 wards containing 42 beds each. The facility is being used to treat coronavirus patients who have been transferred from other intensive care units across the capital. And also there's an issue, of course, with those business loans much touted by the government. Businesses are apparently struggling to access the cash they need. That's according to the British Chambers of Commerce. Just 1% of companies surveyed by the BCC has managed to access the government's loan, uh, business interruption loan scheme. 8% said they've been unsuccessful, citing the complexity of the application process, slow responses. In some cases, they didn't get any answer at all. The BCC says many businesses are facing a cliff edge with 6% having already run out of cash and more than half only able to fund another one or th- one to three months. Now, last week, the government did say its programme had already approved £90 million in loans. Mm. Meanwhile, on the supply front, uh, it isn't looking good there either. Bloomberg's Joe Mays has been writing about the coronavirus outbreak and how it is squeezing the finances of ferry companies that bring the bulk of trucks and freight into the UK. All four of the major operators are cutting back. So P&O Ferries, for example, furloughed 1,100 staff. They're looking for £150 million in terms of a UK bailout. DFDS uh, has also halted sailings from Amsterdam to Newcastle, uh, and the pandemic has buoyed retail demand, of course, from Britain to meanwhile a busy stockpiling essential items still. Car bookings on ferries, though, on the other hand, have slumped. So this is really a very, very difficult situation uh, for the ferry companies, crucial part of our infrastructure, firms increasingly opting to idle vessels. Uh, the UK Chamber of Shipping is warning that it could jeopardise vital supply lines into the country. Meanwhile, the man who had been leading the government's fight against all this uh, is himself in hospital on his second day in the uh, intensive care unit, Boris Johnson. We don't know a great deal about his situation, except it doesn't seem to have changed very much. But it does form something of a crisis for the government. Dominic Raab, his nominated deputy as the first Secretary of State, is contending with the widespread criticism over the government's handling over the virus crisis that is growing now. For more, let's bring in Bloomberg. Opinion columnist Therese Raphael. Now, Therese, uh, you've been writing that um, Boris Johnson's illness kind of highlights Britain's lack of preparedness in all this. Can you explain? Well, there's several uh, several fronts in which Britain uh, lacked preparedness. I mean, one was obviously getting uh, the country's health care system in a state where it could handle a massive surge of demand. That's 
you know, really a topic for, I think, an investigation which will happen, you know, long into the future when, when the, mm. the peak of this crisis has passed. Uh, but, you know, there, the, the more immediate question is what happens in terms of the command and control of the country when the chief executive, when the prime minister is taken um, out of the game for however long? Um, and now it seems with Johnson now spending, you know, second day in ICU that he will probably be out for weeks, um, possibly even months. We just don't know. It doesn't mean he's not there to make decisions for some of it. But surely the day-to-day functioning of the government has to change. And Dominique Robb is making, uh, he's the the public face of of the government now. He's deputizing for Boris Johnson. But he's not uh, a figure that is so well-known in the country. And it's not clear whether he will be taking all the key decisions, whether they will be consensus decisions. And I think as those decisions become more critical as they have to decide, for example, do you open schools? Do you taper some of the relief? It's going to be, um, there's going to be more sort of questioning and criticism of how the government is actually working in Johnson's absence. But Therese, the pushback that we've had from a number of MPs that we have spoken to today, for example, is that um, you cannot look at the UK as if it were a presidential system. It is not. It's cabinet government and the decision making is is unified. The plan is there and all of those decisions will be made amongst a a group of ministers and that actually, um, you know, at least for now, the country can be run effectively. Well, that remains to be seen. I think that it, it is certainly true. It's a very different system. It's, uh, but we also know one thing about cabinet government, and that is that cabinets tend to have a lot of internal disagreement. There are factions. There are uh, cabinet members that um, that also seek, uh, you know, their own their own sort of future agenda. I think all of that is on hold right now. There, the the cabinet is very keen to portray. Um, an image of, of unity, of collegiality, of, of collaboration. But, you know, I think over time there will need to be a sense that there is a, a, some kind of chain of command, some kind of hierarchy, because difficult decisions will have to be made that will require trade-offs between, say, health outcomes and possibly, you know, economic goals. And w- where there is disagreement on the cabinet table, where consensus is not possible, who makes those decisions? Because it's an interesting, this is a government, after all, that was elected with one purpose, which was delivering Brexit, and that has gone a long way away from where we are now. Is there an issue that really shows up the fault lines now because this wasn't something they'd ever, they were ever set up or appointed to deal with? No, I mean, it's an interesting question whether this sort of Brexit fault lines somehow... Um, you know, emerged through this. Obviously, Dominic Robb was a very hardline Brexiter. He ran for the leadership of the party. His, his leadership campaign faltered quite early, but as a as a hardline Brexiter, so he, he you know he's not universally loved in the party among those who didn't share his view on Brexit. I think again, all of that's been pushed to the side for now. But I was speaking to one pollster today, you know, who says that uh, you know these fault lines still exist and they're likely to reemerge at some point. And I think you know again after the moment we are in a, a fairly remarkable period of um, you know some solidarity because of the urgency and the fact that we have not even re- reached the peak sort of damage that this virus is going to do again on the other side of that what sort of divisions do we see emerge who's empowered to take the decisions what kinds of decisions will be made those are the kinds of questions the government's going to want to clarify a little bit how that's going to work we read 
um, today that there is a protocol in cabinet, but that it's classified. So I think over time, the question is, will that be made public? Yeah, indeed. And what possibility of a national unity government? We were just speaking to Sir Ian Duncan Smith, Conservative MP, obviously well-known figure, former party leader himself. That was something he uh, rejected straight away. The only bit of criticism <laughs> that he did level at the government, which we found interesting, uh, was that the government could perhaps have been more open and transparent at the beginning of the pandemic about just what the government did not know. So that was his criticism. But then National Unity Government, uh, you know, rejected entirely. Yeah, I think a lot of governments will... Um you know, we'll have something to answer for in terms of transparency at the start, delays in response. Um, so Britain not alone there. The national unity government is, it, you know, keeps popping up. The, I think the only reason the, that this government would want to do that is if it felt that it could share some of the blame for the response with the opposition Labour Party as mm-hmm. it's just elected a new leader and, uh, it, you know, is seeking to to kind of reinsert itself into the, the scene. For the Labour Party, you know, there's a... There's almost nothing to lose in doing that, um, except, again, if the response ends up being highly criticized and then Labour has to share the blame. At the moment, it doesn't seem like there's any great push uh, uh, to do that. And again, you know, this is a government that's got a very large parliamentary majority, so it doesn't really need um, the opposition's uh, uh, buy-in here in terms of uh, legislation. Now, Therese, I mean, the government's moving into a very interesting moment with uh, something of a confusion at the top, or I might say in terms of the leadership line. But we're, we're getting to the point of reviewing, presumably extending the lockdown. Now, this is a very big ask of the EU British population. It's quite a, a key moment, isn't it? It's a, it is a very key moment. It, what was interesting from some of the now backstory that's coming out about the imperial study that looked at the various responses to the pandemic is that they didn't actually even consider a lockdown because they didn't think the public would would uh, would swallow it. And we've now seen, you know, that that these behavioral uh, behavioral aspects are, are factored into government decision making. One question is when lockdown uh, restrictions are uh, reviewed, which uh, is not going to happen Monday, as we expect. Will that be on a sort of sectoral basis? Will it be on a region-by-region region basis? Or will they, for example, decide that schools should uh, restart? As a, as a recent University College of London study found that school closures had a relatively small impact on the spread of the virus. So these are some of the key decisions that are coming up. Up to now, since Boris Johnson has been taken out of the picture sort of officially, we haven't seen any major decisions by government. But I think that's coming. You know, another one, for example, uh, retailers um, are starting to to worry that this 80 percent pay from the government for furloughed employees is going to disincentivize employees for coming back to work and that that's going to, you know, that that could could be a problem down the road. So the government might want to taper that sort of uh, assistance. Mm-hmm. Again, you know, all all decisions that are going to have to be made, if not, you know, next week, you know, possibly the week after, the week after that. And, and you know, how are they made? Who's making them? Uh, these are the things that we're going to have to talk a lot about. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.